the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Exodus starts off by showing us God's awesome sovereignty. And his plan would not be thwarted by any Pharaoh's plans. No matter whether they're Hyksos, Egyptian, whatever. It doesn't matter. No matter how powerful they are, no matter how powerful they try, the Lord's plans will not even be moved a bit by their efforts. I've done a lot of dumb things in my life. My heart was in the right spot. And God would have to correct me and he'd have to put me on the right path. There's a certain sense where I think God is touched by the fact that our hearts are trying to please him. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. Exodus is a book written by Moses to the children of Israel, relaying to them how God had saved them from slavery to be a special people for His special purposes. It started with all the children of Jacob known as the Israelites. Jacob had died while they were in Egypt. The king of Egypt at the time was worried that the Israelites would grow in numbers and in time try to overthrow the Egyptian monarchy. So, Pharaoh decided he would try to limit the Israelites' growth in population. Here, we join Pastor Will in Exodus chapter 1, verse 10. For it says, he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. The Hyksos were actually outnumbered by the Egyptians, but they were a little bit more technologically advanced. And the Egyptians in that time were kind of lethargic in their approach to life. So the Hyksos were very warlike, very brutal in how they handled things. They came in, they defeated them. They actually defeated both lower and upper Egypt and, and ruled pretty much all of known Egypt during that time. Uh, Eventually, some of the Egyptians fought back and they made a treaty and they only had half of Egypt, but I don't want to bore you with all that stuff. But these guys came in and they were actually smaller. And their constant concern when you read about them is they're worried that the Egyptians will realize that they have more people and they'll finally get the gusto to rise up and overthrow them. Well, that might explain why they'd be concerned about the Israelite population growth. If these guys decide to take us on and they get actually the gumption to do it, we can't beat them. And so verse 10, he says, Come, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it come to pass, when there falls out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us. Now, why would you worry about that? Maybe you would if the enemies are within because you're ruling over them. And fight against us and so get them up out of the land. Therefore they did set over them their taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramses. One of the reasons that I think it's very possible that this could be the Hyksos is because of the fact that they were responsible for the initial commissioning of the building of the treasure cities of Python and Ramses. One of the difficulties with the Egyptian timeline is, if you ever seen, you know, um, you know, any of the movies about Moses, you know, the Ten Commandments, who's, who's usually the, uh, what's the name of the Pharaoh during the time that Moses is there? Ramses, right? 
One of the reasons that is is because when we read here in the scriptures that they built the treasure cities of Ramses, we had no record of the word Ramses anywhere prior to the reign of Ramses I and then Ramses II. So everyone assumed that it was this guy since Ramses II was the great builder. The problem with that is you got to give things time and you got to do more research. Over time, we discovered that the word Ramses was actually a Hyksos term and it was used by them and the construction of their cities. And so more likely it was that the Egyptians adopted the name because of how powerful and big these cities were and it gave them a status to adopt the name. So we had it backwards. So a lot of times that's why people, oh, they, if you talk to an Egyptian archaeologist, they'll say, oh, the Exodus is hogwash. It could have never happened. We have no evidence for it during the reign of Ramses. You're right. There is no evidence for it during the reign of Ramses because it probably didn't take place during the reign of Ramses. <laughs> On the other hand, if you back it up about 200 years, there's tons of evidence for the fact that Israel or a, a uh, Canaanite people was there during that time and left in mass numbers and were enslaved. So it says that he said, come, let us deal wisely. The word there means to deceive. I don't know how he tricked Israel. I don't know how he got them to fall for this, but somehow they became enslaved. And they set them taskmasters to afflict them. The word there means to humble or humiliate them. They were to beat them down so much that they would not even think of themselves as a people anymore. To afflict them with their burdens. The word taskmaster means a gang overseer. In fact, there's a lot of uh, ancient uh, Egyptian motives have these taskmasters. They usually carry a staff and a certain kind of a staff, and they're just, these guys are menacing looking gang overseers. And they afflicted them with forced labor, and they caused them to build these, not treasure cities, but storage or supply cities. Most people think they were munition cities for the Hyksos army. And they built these cities of Ramses and Python. Avarice was actually the capital of the Hyksos rulers. And that was the ancient name of the city of Ramses. So again, I don't know if it was a Hyksos. If you want to do your own studying and you can come up with a better answer, let me know. But there, that's what I'm going with for now. Verse 12, check out though how their plan fails. But the more that they afflicted them, the more they humbled and humiliated them, the more they multiplied and grew. And so they were grieved because of the children of Israel. The word there means to feel a sickening dread. These guys are going to kill us. They are going to rise up against us and overthrow us. Well, verse 13 says, So the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor, harshness, cruelty, severity. And, with, uh, and it says they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, cruel slavery, in mortar, cement, and in brick, and in all manner of service in the field, the most menial of tasks. All their service, were made, they made them to serve. It was with harshness, cruelty, and severity. Verse 15, we find here now a different word for king. This is the normal word that we use for pharaoh. And most people believe that it's during this time that the Hyksos were then re-overthrown by the Egyptians. And as a result, they maintained the status of slave for the Israelis. And so the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shipra, and the name of the other was Pua. And he said, when you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then shall you kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. And so we find here the Pharaoh's evil plan to stop Israelite growth. He tells these midwives, now I don't think it was just two women that delivered every child in Israel. I think these were probably the head of a, a trade association or some group that, you know, were overseeing the midwives. And, and he spoke to these two leaders and said, whenever 
One of you guys, ladies, are going out to perform the office of the midwife, and you see them upon the stools. The way that this would work is the, the, the wife, would, the woman would be in labor, and when she would give birth, they would have next, they would have these stones there. And the stone would be like a stone, like washing bin. It would be for when the child would come out, they'd place him inside this stone wash bin, and they would clean him off and, and clean the child up, and then wrap him up and bring him to mom. Well, he says, when you see them upon the stool, so when they get there and they get ready to have the baby, it says, and then the, the baby goes into that watering trough, kill him. This way, no one know you're killing babies. Just, you know, hold him under the water and he, he drowns. No, he died. He came out dead or something. But if he be a daughter, then shall you let them live. Now, it's interesting when we look at the history here going through Egypt, when the Hyksos were defeated by Thutmosis II, he was even worse, it says here, to the Israelites than the previous rulers were. It was him who probably instituted this practice. His daughter was Queen Hatshepsut. She was not a great ruler. She was not loved by her people. But so when she was eradicated, Thutmose III took over, and then Amenhotep II took over after that, and he is probably the pharaoh during the Exodus. So there's a lot of time that's going between this and Moses, and the Exodus, and all of that. We're covering a huge chunk of time here. Now, these midwives, interestingly enough, it doesn't say that they're Hebrew. We don't know for sure. In fact, one translation could show that they're not Hebrew. And so it's possible these are Egyptian midwives or other foreign midwives. But notice the characteristic that it says about the midwives here. It says, but the midwives, what? Feared God. We read about that in our scripture reading today. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? What is the fear of the Lord? Well, Proverbs also tells us the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And the best way I've heard it describe what the fear of the Lord is or to fear God means, it means to love what God loves and to hate what he hates. That's a good description of having reverence for God. A God, you ever heard people use the phrase, he's a God-fearing man, she's a God-fearing woman. That's what that means. They love what God loves and they hate what God hates. If God says, this is my opinion about a thing, they say, then that's what my opinion is gonna be, Lord. I follow you. I get my marching orders from you. And however these ladies knew the Lord, they had that attitude toward God. They said, Lord, we love you and what you love and we hate what you hate and we don't wanna do it. And so they did not, as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they saved the men children alive. Well, there's going to be consequences for disobedience to the king. And so the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, why have you done this thing and have saved the men children alive? Well, the midwives said unto Pharaoh, well, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively. The word there means vigorous, strong. They don't wait, man. They're just ready to go. They're ready to pop them out before we get there. And so they're delivered before the midwives come in. We can't drown them. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that he made them houses. Now, it would be very uncommon, usually if you were a midwife, is because you didn't have children of your own. You have to realize in the culture, to be barren in that day was considered a curse. It was not considered something of, you know, oh, I'm, I get to live my life and I get to be free. But oftentimes it's thought of in our culture. You were considered unfavored by God, unfavored in life, that your life wasn't as special as someone else's. And so to work in this capacity meant they probably did not have, they either weren't married or they didn't have children. And so God blessed them with families and, and houses. And, and the word there actually means households. So they blessed them with families who they didn't have them before. So he did a miracle and he made them, rather than being barren, allowed them to be fruitful and to have children. You might be wondering, how could God bless them if they lied? I don't understand, Will. This doesn't make sense to me. A couple things you want to address. First off, their disobedience. The Bible tells us that we're to obey the laws of the land, right? I mean, I'm summing up, but that's what it says, right? 
we are to obey the laws of the land. You know, I have heard people say, well, I don't, I don't like the speed limit, so I'm going to do whatever I want. No, you need to obey the speed limit. You know, I don't like the laws. Well, tough. That's just how it is. You know, you need to abide by the laws. The Bible says that we're to obey the laws so that we can live peaceable lives and good lives and be able to share the gospel and not, you know, receive uh, criticism from the government that we are under for those powers are ordained of God. That being said, what do we do when our government tells us to do something and it contradicts what the Bible tells us to do. At that point in time, we have to take the same exact stance that the apostles took in the book of Acts. Turn the book of Acts with me. Acts chapter 4, verse 9, well, verse 18, we'll start there. The Sanhedrin called in the apostles in verse 18, and they commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Now, that's something the Bible tells us to do, right? To spread the, the gospel, right? To make disciples, to teach in the name of Jesus. So Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They basically said, hey, whether we're supposed to listen to you or listen to God, we'll let you figure it out. But we are going to do what God has told us to do. Listen, if the government ever asks you to do something that the Bible very clearly says you can't do, then you must not do it. I've heard all the time, okay, what about parents and children obeying their parents? What if a parent asks a child to do something that's illegal? Or what if a parent tells a child to do something that's morally wrong? Or what if a parent tells a child to do something that God says is wrong? Well, then guess what? You don't have to listen to your parents. What if my husband tells me to ask me to do something that's illegal or something that's wrong? Or what if my husband tells me I can't come to church? Do I have to submit to him? No, you don't. You submit unto him as unto the Lord. That's what the Bible says. But when he's telling you to do something that's opposite of what God says then you must obey the Lord. You must obey the Lord because your first submission is to him. Your first submission is to him. If our government ever tells us, well, you can't read the Bible, I say, well, I'll tell you what. I will make sure I water my lawn only on certain days. I'll make sure I go to the speed limit. I'll make sure I don't litter. But guess what? I am reading my Bible because the Bible tells me I need to study the word to show myself approved. So do whatever you gotta do. When it comes to a clear thing like that, we must disobey those who are in authority, and we must do what's right. My pastor told me I have to do this. Well, is that in the Bible? Well, no. Well, then you don't have to do it. <laughs> well, he'll say I'm rebellious. Then tough, I guess you're a rebel. I'd rather be a rebel against man and submitted to God than to be a rebel against the Lord. The first loyalty, our first love, is always to our Savior. And he has given us clear instruction in his word. Now, Right now in, in Oregon, there's this standoff with this militia group up there who has broken into a, a government building and they've said, we're not leaving until they restore property rights and all this kind of garbage and whatever. Listen, I understand that our country was founded on rebellion. I get it. And that there were many reasons that we felt like we were unjustly treated by the government of England. But that doesn't give us the right to stand here and say that we're going to disobey when the Bible has nothing to say about those things. And I think we have to be very careful about going on personal political crusades and we call it God's will. There were some very clear things that I think our founding fathers had biblical reasons for why they said we're being asked to do things that are not right, that are wrong to do morally, and, and, and we cannot do those things. And I think we have to be very careful that we don't start to call certain things that when the Bible doesn't say anything about those certain things. The Bible, if it's silent, we have to be careful not to all of a sudden create our own political positions within the Bible somewhere because it suits our political leanings. But when the Bible is clear then we must choose to obey the Lord and not someone else. Now, 
That's where God honored these people. God did not honor them because they lied. Nowhere does it say here that God honored them because they lied. Nowhere here does God say that it was okay that they lied. I don't know if that was the best way to handle it. You know, a lot of times people ask me, what about like when people were hiding Jews from, you know, the Nazis and they lied when the Jews are hiding any Jews here? No. You know, is that right or was that wrong? I don't know. I'm not here to stand and say what was right, what is wrong. I just know the Bible says you're not supposed to bear false witness. But I know this, it would have been wrong to turn those people over to them. That I know. I know this, it would have been wrong for these midwives to murder those children. That I know. And so, was this the best way for them to handle it? I don't know that. But it seems to me that God was looking at their heart and he was seeing that they were trying to do the right thing because they feared him above the, the, the king of Egypt. And as a result, they chose to save life rather than destroy life. And God honored that. I've done a lot of dumb things in my life. My heart was in the right spot. And God would have to correct me and he'd have to put me on the right path. There's a certain sense where I think God is touched by the fact that our hearts are trying to please him. Remember the story where Peter, someone came to Peter and he said, he said, hey, does your master pay the temple tax? Peter's singing, of course he does. I, my master pays the temple tax, you bet. And he goes home, he goes, ah, Jesus, I got a question. Uh, do we pay the temple tax? I'm sure we pay the temple tax, right? And, and Jesus says to me, he goes, Peter, uh, what do you think it's right? You know, who do people, basically, who do people tax? You know, do the invaders tax, you know, their own, or do they tax the people they've conquered? And he's like, oh, they tax the people they've conquered. He goes, then why should we have to pay a tax for God's people? And Jesus explains to him that that temple tax was a corrupt thing. It was a wrong thing. But what motivated Peter to say what he said, aside from his ability to, very canny ability to stick his foot in his mouth at the worst situations? Peter was loyal to his Lord. He didn't want anyone to think ill of his Lord. He didn't want anyone to think that his Lord didn't do something he was supposed to do. And he's standing up for him. Actually, you know what the Lord did? Instead of rebuking Peter, he explained to him the truth. Then he said to me, he said, yeah, but lest we come under criticism, he says, why don't you go fishing? And the first fish you catch in his mouth, you'll find two coins. One for me, one for you. Go pay our temple tax. See, the Lord was so gracious and he was so kind because he saw Peter's heart. You know, I think of the end of the book of John when the Lord comes to restore Peter after he did fail. And he asks me, he says, Peter, you love me more than all this? This old life you've gone back to of fishing? You sold out to me, basically, is what he says. Do you agape me? And Peter he was pretty crushed at that moment. He said, Lord, you know I phileo you. You know I'm your friend. He doesn't come up to that level of, you know I'm sold out for you because he'd already done that and he'd failed. The Lord asked him again, he says, Peter, do you, you sold out to me more than all these? Peter says, Lord, you know, you know I'm your friend. So finally the Lord looks at him and he says, Peter, are you my friend? If the King James, he just says, do you love me in all three places, but it's a different words. He says, Peter, are you my friend? And that broke Peter's heart because he thought, Lord, last time I made a declaration of what I thought about you, I came so short. He says, Lord, you know everything. So maybe you, you could look into my heart and you could see maybe I'm not that way, but look as hard as you want. You know that I am your friend. And you know what? That was good enough for the Lord. He didn't ask for some bold declaration. I'm sold out for you. I'm all in, Jesus. He said, that's fine. You follow me. Feed my sheep, love my sheep, tend my little lambs. You take care of them. The Lord met him right where he was at. People say, oh, Will, you're making excuses for sin. No, I'm not. Don't say, don't put words in my mouth. What I'm saying is, is that we do not always handle things perfectly. 
If we did, we wouldn't need him. (laughs) And as a result, I think the Lord does see our heart when it's in a right place. I do think he corrects us too. But I, I think he sees our heart and I believe he's touched by it. At least that's what I see in the scripture. Because he did not condemn them for lying. Rather, he commended them for saving life. So, verse 22. And Pharaoh charged all of his people, saying, Every son that is born, you shall cast it into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. I'm not waiting for these Egyptian midwives. You find a little boy, you throw him into the river. And that's how we're going to deal with this Israelite problem. And thus, now we have a crisis. And so, I think it's interesting when we come to chapter 2, and we're introduced to Moses... We're going to find him cast upon the river, but in the hands of a sovereign God who protects him and leads him right up to the bathing spot of Pharaoh's daughter. We've talked a lot about what Exodus will bring to us, what we're going to learn, but in this first chapter, what I find fascinating is that we find multiple attempts to derail the growth of God's people. But God had promised Abraham way back in Genesis 15. He had promised him that his descendants would number the stars in the sky. Abraham came to Abraham and he said, Fear not, Abraham, I'm your shield and your exceeding great reward. But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me? Seeing I go childless and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. He's the guy who's going to get everything I have. And Abraham said, Behold, to me you have given no seed and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be your heir. But he that shall come forth out of your own bowels, he shall be your heir. And he brought him forth abroad, and he said, Look now toward heaven, and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall your seed be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and was counted to him for righteousness. God is fulfilling that. And it doesn't matter what efforts the Egyptians make, God is going to sovereignly make that happen. Exodus starts off by showing us God's awesome sovereignty. And his plan would not be thwarted by any Pharaoh's plans, no matter whether they're Hyksos, Egyptian, whatever, it doesn't matter. No matter how powerful they are, no matter how powerful they try, the Lord's plans will not even be moved a bit by their efforts. Do you realize that no weapon formed against you shall prosper? Do you know that? That's what the Bible says. That if God is for us, who can be against us? Do you stand on that? Listen, don't ever forget that your king sits on the throne of the universe and that he is in complete charge of everything. Amen? Let's all stand. You know, Lord, you're so good and you're so kind to us. You don't have to be. You are, have no needs. It's not like you're lacking anything, Lord. And, you know, you weren't lonely. That's not why you made us. You weren't lonely. That's not why you redeemed us, Lord. You and, and, and the Son and the Spirit had perfect fellowship and perfect love and perfect harmony. You had you have everything you need in and of yourself. And yet, Lord, you reach down and you minister to us. You give us precious promises. You give us plans. And then you make those plans come to pass no matter how much the enemy might rage. Lord, help us to see that in our own lives, to never sell you short, to never give up, to never think you don't care, but to stand upon those promises knowing that no weapon formed against us shall prosper. All that rise up against us shall fall. And the promise of your word is that if you are for us, who could be against us? The obvious answer, Lord, is none. For Lord, you have no opposite. You are God alone. You're almighty, all-powerful, and sovereign. And for that, 
we can find great rest in your arms. So, Lord, we give ourselves to you tonight. We give ourselves to the study of this book of Exodus, Lord, that as we go through it, we would see how you set us free, Lord. We'd see how you've called us to a relationship with you. We'd see how you've called us to a place of that blessed, abundant life of walking in victory. And, Lord, that we would lay hold of it in adoration and surrender. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Israelites were being brutalized and treated with hostility. It was a hard and dark place in Egypt for them, but God was in control nonetheless. Pharaoh's attempts to destroy the population of Israel had failed over and over. God is completely sovereign over every situation we come to. We can trust that not only has God allowed us to come to this circumstance for a reason, but that He can and will use every scenario in our lives for our good, to His glory. All we must do is trust Him. Join us tomorrow as we continue our study through the book of Exodus. Should you have questions about anything or would like prayer concerning today's message or for anything at all, please reach out to us. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel, Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.